I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Arnor. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Udun! Wait, what? It's question time. This is Quinya Questions in Quarantine. I'm reading The Silmarillion for the first time with my teacher extraordinaire, Sam. And today we'll be talking about chapter one of The Beginning of Days. All right. I'm ready for it, Raleigh. This is Sam here, ready to rock. Okay, great. Sam, can you uh, walk us through a quick summary of the last episode, The Valaquinta? Yeah, The Valaquinta. So last time we basically went through and laid out the main gods and goddesses, who are called the Valar and the Valier in the Tolkien parlance. We learned about the top three male gods, Manwe, Ulmo, and Aule, who we assigned as part of our Arda Corporation. The CEO is Manwe, Ulmo is the, the COO, but also sort of opposition research. And then Aule, the foreman of the operation who's building stuff. And then on the Valier side, we had Varda, or Elbereth, the Lady of the Stars, who is the chairman of the board and overseeing everything. And also Yavanna, the uh, project manager in charge of animals and plant life, as well as the other ones that make up the 14 Valar. And then we learned about their servants, the Maiar, who are sort of these demigods, of which Gandalf is one. And then we talked about Melkor, the former god who's now the opposition, and his name changed to Morgoth, and he has Sauron in his team, and he's got the Balrogs and some other evil spirits. That's kind of the high-level setup, and now that we've staffed up our Arda Corporation with all of these gods, now, as you said, we're at the beginning of days, the Silmarillion proper, and we have to see these guys go to work. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we've finally set the stage for everything and actually getting into the tales now. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move right in. So this is, yeah, chapter one. Let's do the Raleigh recap. What the heck happened this time, Raleigh? Well, so we start off really just diving right in. So Tulkas, who I don't believe you actually uh, talked about, but he starts us off here by uh, chasing Melkor basically chasing him out of Middle-earth. And so Melkor flees and leaves for a little bit. I think we called Tulkos our uh, event security <laughs> for the yeah. Malmar. Yeah, so exactly. He's, so, yeah, he's... so he's like, Melkor, you've had too much to drink. You're knocking over all our mountains. You're going to have to go and take a breather. <laughs> he kicks him out of Middle-earth for the time being. Yeah, that's the perfect analogy here. So meanwhile, Melkor's gone. We have Yavanna planting a lot of seeds. And these seeds will ultimately grow into trees. And I think we'll talk a little bit further about the trees in a little bit. But they seem to play a big role in the later parts of the book. Other characters going on, we have Aula, and he makes the lamps. And so now with the seeds of Yavanna and the lamps of Aula, we have the light and life brought to Arda for the first time. And this begins the spring of Arda. Woo! And... <laughs> The spring of Arda seems like it must be a pretty great time. Singing around, dancing, just having what you would envision like elves to be doing, even though they're gods, it still seems like the perfect elven time. But 
our uh, good buddy Melkor, meanwhile, sneaks back into Arda and creates his own stronghold called Utunmano. So now he's got his hidden fortress. And he's getting ready to uh, basically destroy Arda again. So he attacks the Valor, destroys their lamps and many pieces of Arda, and officially ends the Spring of Arda. So in response then, the Valor create Valinor as this new place outside Middle-earth. And this is where the two trees of Valinor begin. Yeah, and absolutely. I and that's where we end the chapter, more or less. At the end of chapter, it says, thus begins the count of time, which yes. I remember you were interested in the other day. So I thought that was good that here we were in a land before time. What I like is that our event security guy, Tolkos, he basically at this big feast they have in the spring of Arda, he gets married to one of the other gods, but then he himself... Perhaps he had a little too much to drink or had a little too much fun. He falls asleep, which lets Melkor come back in. Basically, Melkor waits for the bodyguard to look the other way, and then he jumps back in and builds a tumno, this big fortress. Uh, okay. And then he can wreck everything again. And as he said, the Valar are like, oh, come on, Melkor. So instead of like fighting him again, they basically just bail and move west to Valinor. It's like a paradise or a Garden of Eden or a heaven place. And they're like, all right, Melkor, for a while, we're going to let you have the main place, and we're just going to go west and set up our sweet spot. It's like two siblings, right? Like in the back of the car, be like, don't cross on my side. <laughs> you can do whatever you want, just stop bothering me. And so they set up that situation, which has some pros and cons. I mean, it lets Melkor do whatever he wants with the world for a time, which is obviously not good because the elves and men are supposed to show up there at a certain point. But at least it gives the Valor some breathing room to make something they want without Melkor kicking it over like he did to Outlay's lamps. And probably the number one thing they make, as you said, are these two trees. Yavanna plants these trees and everybody's quiet, and she sings a bunch, and then out of her music, they grow. And these trees are going to be really important, as the book says, about their fate. All the tales of the elder days are woven. For once, Tolkien, actually, both Christopher and J.R.R. is flagging, like, pay attention to these trees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's nice. And then, of course, the trees have a bunch of different names. One of them is called Telperion. And it is a silver tree that puts off a silver light. And then the other one is named a Lauraline, which is a golden tree and puts off a golden light. And in this time, remember the lamps, which were the only thing providing light in the world, have been kicked over. There's no sun and moon at this point. So there's stars that are over Middle Earth. And then there's this golden light from Lauraline and this silver light from Tilperion. And that's all we really have, these lights wax and wane, and this creates the first sort of day and night-ish cycle. And that's how we start counting time, is by the light of these two trees. We'll follow this as it goes through the story, but Tilperion, the silver tree from your Lord of the Rings fandom, you'll want to know that eventually, through many a descent, the seed from Tilperion or its kindred is going to become that white tree in Gondor. Uh, okay, so that was one thing I wrote down to ask. So we have these trees of Biavana. Do they lead to Minas Tirith's tree, which it sounds like it does? And also do. the big tree in Lothlorien. Is that related oh, as yeah. well? 
You know, I actually don't know the answer to that. That's a good one. Maybe that's from Laureline. That might be a separate thing, but those trees are so special in Lothlorien. I'll make a note to look that up for next time. But certainly these are going to have a long carryover. And in the shorter term, as I said, there's no sun and moon at this point. The sun and moon are going to be created from the fruit of these trees. So Laureline, the golden tree, is going to have a fruit that becomes the sun until Perrin's going to have a fruit that becomes the moon. That's not going to happen until a little bit later. Interesting. They bring life to Middle-earth then. If you're shopping around for a tree and you spot these guys, this is top-tier tree, and they're Yavanna's greatest creation. So it'll be worth tracking them. So, Raleigh, I thought I'd let you pick out a theme or a section of this chapter that you thought was cool and we could talk about, as well as any other questions that we can try and puzzle through together. Yeah, definitely. So I have one here. It's uh, an extended sentence, as most of these are. <laughs> here goes, I'll read it. Yet the elves believe that men are often a grief to Manway, who knows most of the mind of Iluvatar. For it seemed to the elves that men resemble Melkor most of all, the Ainur. And although he has ever feared and hated them, even those that served him. So I want to focus more on the first two clauses of that. The part where it says, for it seems to the elves that men resemble Melkor most of all, the Ainur. So one of the big clashes in the Lord of the Rings is between the men and the elves and how much the elves seem to look distrustful on the men. In fairness, for good reason. I mean, you had the nine rings of power that Sauron created just to corrupt the nine kings and easily took over all those uh, power-hungry men. You had Isildur trying to destroy the ring, also corrupted. So it seems to me in these next few chapters that we're going to see a lot of strife between the men and the elves, and I guess over the next three ages as well. So... The thing that I find most curious is how much would these high elves really just dislike men moving forward because they see men as an offshoot of Melkor? Well, I think that you're absolutely right that much of the grief that's going to come to pass in the preceding chapters has to do with distrust and conflict between elves and men, although it's punctured, obviously, with some wonderful points of unity and working together that is some of the best parts of the Silmarillion. But there's definitely some elvish snobbery <laughs> yeah. at play. You know, the elves are the firstborn, the men are the secondborn, and the elves are like, all right, we live forever, we're wiser, we feel closer to the gods and understand them better. And men are just like, they're born, they die, yeah, they're what, not are they, wise. what are they doing? They're impetuous, etc. And sort of in their interest in creation and destruction, I think that's something that they identify with Melkor. So it's a good thing to flag now because it certainly will be a point of tension that lasts throughout the whole piece. There's also this separation between like the gods basically have made everything in the world on behalf of Iluvatar, the one god, but only Iluvatar is in charge of the elves and men. So the Valar are really interested in the elves and men because they're the only thing that they really don't quite understand perfectly. But it does say here in the same chapter, if ever in their dealings with elves and men, the Valar have endeavored to force them when they would not be guided, seldom has this turned to good, however good the intent. So it basically means 
much like the elves of Valar are going to try and like control elves and men, give them advice, get them to do what they want. But even when they have good intentions, that sort of meddling is just going to mess things up worse. You know, some real paternalism going on from the Valar to elves and men and also the elves to the men. I think that's going to be fun to see play out going forward. Of course, once we actually have some of these creatures to be awakening. Yeah, we're uh, definitely really setting the stage here. Yeah, chapter three will be the coming of the elves. So stay tuned. So anything else you wanted to have questions about, Raleigh, or wanted to say about that um, section? Well, this is more just a line. There's this line, the Noldor also... It was who first achieved the making of gems, and the fairest of all gems were the Silmarils, and they are lost. Reading the title of the Silmarillion and not knowing anything of what that was, now seeing that they're gems and that they're lost, it seems like there's going to be a lot of perhaps battles over these gems, or at least quests about the gems. I, don't know. I think you are absolutely spot on on that. And I also love how it's quintessentially Tolkien to talk about the Noldor and the Silmarils before he's described who the Noldor are. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's, that's one of the groups of the elves, which will be kind of the most important group for the purposes of the Silmarillion. Yes, a, a few um, sentences before that, it says, Alay it is who is named the friend of the Noldor. And then I furiously scratched down, Noldor, question <laughs> mark? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a bit non-linear in that sense. But yeah, that's great to flag. So here we know the Silmarils are gems, and we know Tolkien's fascination with these objects of great power, and these are going to be the uber presentation of that. So that's great. It's almost like a little teaser for like making you keep reading to figure out what the heck these things are now that we're actually reading the Silmarillion. <laughs> yeah. Raleigh, I picked another passage that I wanted to talk about. It's another one actually from not the Silmarillion, but the Lord of the Rings that I think this chapter of the beginning of days really helps people who have read the Fellowship of the Ring or even seen the movie really understand what the heck is going on in the Lord of the Rings better because of this backstory that we had in this chapter, which is one of our main goals, I think, for the Quenya questions in quarantine is to see how this all feeds back to the story that we already know and love. Definitely. So, it makes it easier to tie everything together. <laughs> exactly. And so here I'm going to read you just like a couple paragraphs from the book, which is almost created word for word in the Peter Jackson Fellowship of the Ring movie. And it is also perhaps the most memeable moment of the whole series because it's the you shall not pass section with Gandalf standing off on the bridge in Moria against the giant fiery Balrog, which is probably like one of the top moments of the whole series. So I'm glad we get to talk about it today. But here, let me read these couple paragraphs, and I cannot deliver the lines as well as they deserve it, but here we go. The Balrog reached the bridge. Gandalf stood in the middle of the span, leaning on the staff in his left hand, but in his other hand, glamdring gleamed, cold and white. His enemy halted again, facing him. And the shadow about it reached out like two vast wings. It raised the whip, and the thongs whined and cracked. Fire came from its nostrils. But Gandalf stood firm. You cannot pass, he said. The orc stood still, and a dead silence fell. I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Anor. You cannot pass. The dark fire will not fail you, flame of Udun. Go back to the shadow. 
you cannot pass, <laughs> which they do is the you shall not pass in the movie, and then he breaks the bridge. The part I wanted to focus on there is Gandalf says, I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Anor. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Udun. And so here we've got some like classic proper noun usage. <laughs> The first thing I wanted to point out that specifically has to do with this chapter of the beginning of days is that Udun, which Gandalf says, the dark fire will not avail you, flame of Udun. Udun is another word for Otomno, which is this huge stronghold that Melkor has now created in the north of Middle-earth in this chapter. So his base of operations. We also know that, so Gandalf says, I am a servant of the secret fire. So the secret fire he's referring to there is the fire at the heart of the universe that we learned about in the very first chapter, the flame imperishable that Iluvatar puts into the world. And then Anor, I'm a wielder of the flame of Anor. Anor is another word for the sun, which we haven't seen yet, but we know is going to be the fruit of that tree, Laureline. I just thought that was a cool that we can put those pieces together. Does that change at all your understanding of that part of the Lord of the Rings, knowing what those things are? Honestly, a little bit, because knowing that Gandalf is one of the Maiar, and he wields the flame of Anor, so he's basically calling the sun as a demigod. I mean, that makes him seem even more powerful than I knew he was before. He fights the demons of the ancient world and can resurrect himself. That's more power than I think is given off, um, at least in the movies. To be frank, I can't remember how much they talked about his backstory in the book, but it seems like it's more from the Hobbit's viewing of the world in the movies and what Gandalf's powers are rather than what the reader would know. Yeah, and I think the Lord of the Rings books are also very lacks on the backstory, right? Like, all we know about Gandalf and the Lord of the Rings is basically what we learned about him in The Hobbit. <laughs> that there are these wizards, the hobbits think they're really good at fireworks, and they have these powers, right? But we don't get a lot. And I think the other thing, just to build on what you said, Raleigh, is just that not only is Gandalf this Maiar, and by saying, I am a servant of the secret fire, he kind of identifies himself as a Maiar, because it says... I was there before the world existed when we were all just singing the song of Iluvatar, and I like was there when the imperishable fire was put at the heart of the world. So he says, I'm a Maiar. But we also know, of course, that the Balrog is also a Maiar, who served Melkor all the way back at the beginning as well. So it gives this real like time span to this battle. The Maiar, including the wizards, have been opposed to the Balrogs all the way back from like when Udun or Atumno was formed, which again we've learned is before time even existed. <laughs> right, yeah, so it makes the battle even more epic. You have two beings from the beginning of time fighting each other, and then off on the side is the, the orc and the man battles. It almost, yes. it almost makes like the fight of Minas Tirith less important. A little bit before that, you remember if Aragorn and Boromir are trying to like help Gandalf. They want to help him on the bridge, and he keeps being like, back off, guys. You know, what like, are you going to say, like, like throw a sword at it? Right, this is a foe beyond any of you. And it really does put that in context. This is not a battle that a man 
even if it's Aragorn, can really play a part in. This is sort of like a primordial matchup that goes back beyond time. The final little bit here, so we yeah, that's the Secret Fire and Udun. The other part, the Wielder of the Flame of Honor. Again, it's Honor's just a word for the sun. That part's a little more debated, what Gandalf is referring to there. And it could be just a second reference to the imperishable fire, right? Like, not only am I the servant of it, but I wield this imperishable fire. It also, some people think, has to do with, you know, Gandalf is one of the elvish rings, and it's the ring of fire. And so it might be about that, although it's never called, like, the sun ring or anything like that. So one reading of the text that I really liked about this wielder of the flame of Anor, and I'm not sure if this is right. So Gandalf is saying, I wield the sun. Do you, do you remember the part? There's a part in The Hobbit where Bilbo has snuck in to the dragon's lair, and he is invisible, and he's trying not to tell the dragon who he is. So he starts talking about all of his titles. Yeah, yeah. Right? He's like... I am the luck winner and he who walks unseen and the barrel rider. Barrel rider, yeah. So this could be a way when he says wielder of the flame of honor, it could be sort of Gandalf doing a similar mechanism. And the reason that that's interesting is because this wielder of the flame of honor could refer to this part also in the Hobbit. You remember the scene where the dwarves are all captured by the trolls and then Gandalf tricks the trolls into talking to each other until the sun rises and turns them to stone. Right, right. So in a way, that is Gandalf wielding the sun <laughs> as a weapon to kill the trolls. Oh, that's interesting. And also he does this again at Helm's Deep. You remember, like, the sun rises right when Gandalf shows up with Eomir and crew. That's in the movie. Eomir's already at Helm's Deep in the book. But anyway, Gandalf shows up and rides in with the sun and takes everybody out. So there is this Gandalf-Sun connection in a warlike way that this kind of wielder of the Flame of Honor could be him just like, that's one of my titles. Huh. Um, yeah, that's, that's cool. I uh, never would have known that without reading this book. I mean, it adds like a whole new element to Gandalf as a character. At least in the movie, when he comes back as Gandalf the White, he has a staff that shoots out light. Does that happen in the book too? And is that an instance where he's using light as a weapon? I'm specifically thinking of in Return of the King when he's going to say Faramir. Yeah, I think that that doesn't happen in the book in quite that literal way. But I love that it picks up on that same exact theme. Especially because of the, like, right here he says the Balrog, right? Go back to the shadow. So it's a real, like, light versus dark dynamic even if it's not literally in the book i like that the movie kind of picks up on that same theme by basically having him have a giant magical flashlight as well as the light he uses to guide them through moria right like his his staff starts shining there as well yeah yeah good point and i guess what i'm thinking of now is that that sort of light versus darkness thing calls back to where we are here in the Silmarillion at the beginning of days where there was no light. It was a world of darkness. The Valar made these lamps to try and light up the world, and then Melkor kicked them over <laughs> and plunged the world back into darkness. And so they, then they ran them through to Valinor and built these trees to give off light. So that will be an eternal struggle, this light and darkness, which is also playing out in the Gandalf Balrog passage and also in that part of the movie you mentioned where the Nazgul are coming in in the dark and Gandalf scares him away with his flashlight. 
So that's all I have for that section today. Is there anything else you want to talk about for this chapter? I have just one question. We're talking about one of these characters in here, Orome, which actually I don't think we've even really brought up. It says, Orome tamer of beasts who ride to at wiles in the darkness of the unlit forests. As a mighty hunter, he came with spear and bow, pursuing to the death the monsters and fell creatures of the kingdom of Melkor. And his white horse, Nahar, shone like silver in the shadows. So my question here is about Nahar, an ancestor of Shadowfex. That is a great question that I don't know the answer to off the top of my head. We talked about Orome a little bit. He's kind of like a knight. We'll see in the elves chapter, but he's a little bit like the recruiter for the Valar, where he rides where he's not supposed to and makes sure everything's going okay and goes yeah. hunting. So he's a recon? At the very least, when we do learn the story of the Maras, which is the kind of horse that Shadowfax is, there's a reference to, even if they're not like descended from them, it's like in a simile, right? It's like, like Orome's horse, Nahar, were the Maras, or like maybe once gifted from Orome's. Like there is a connection made there, even if it's not like a direct descendant. So that's a great thing to notice. Nahar's probably like the best horse ever. Nahar and Orome is going to go with him all over the world, and he'll ride everywhere. Yeah, um, okay, okay. So it's like in our world, there used to be these, like, 20-foot sloths that were, like, the greatest sloths ever, and now the descendants are a bit smaller, maybe not as regal as those old sloths, but here we have this ancestral horse who was the best one ever, as you say, and then Shadowfax and the, the mares are a uh, a little bit lesser, but still good. Yeah, like we're meant to think of Orome and Nahar riding around together. Also, a funny fact is that despite how fast Orome and Nahar can get around, I guess Tolkos, our event uh, security guy, he just runs everywhere he goes, and he's still faster than everybody else. <laughs> he's not fancy about it like Orome, but he, he gets where he's going. He's just the Flash of this world. Yeah, the Flash, but also, yeah, he can just kick Melkor's butt. He's a real wild card, and he's laughing the whole time while he does it. Well, so anyway, the days have begun, Raleigh. Are you excited? Absolutely. We've set the stage pretty well here and created a nice base for knowing what's going on and who to look out for. So I'm yeah, ready to, uh, to start seeing of Aule and Yavanna. Yeah, so that's chapter two, Aule and Yavanna. That's the foreman and the project manager who are married. And we're going to see that they basically get in a big fight. <laughs> and that's going to be the theme of the chapter. It's actually really good. It's God versus God, husband versus wife in the art of corporation. And also by proxy, we're going to get some Dorf versus Ent, which is very exciting. So our first sort of like non-God figures are going to pop into the story. And who to thunk it? It would be the dwarves before the elves are men. Oh, wow. Older than the others. Yeah. As we'll see, Luvatar didn't know they were going to be so old either. I could be very happy about them popping up so early. <laughs> so all that and more next time on 20 Questions in Quarantine. See you then, Raleigh. See you, Sam. Hey, Raleigh. Hey, Sam. 
good to hear from you. I just wanted to jump in with a couple of fillers after our last conversation because we had a couple of pending questions. So I know that you were eagerly awaiting some answers on your shadow facts question and also about the big trees in Lothlorien that we were talking about. And I think I've got some answers for you. Oh, perfect. Number one, you had that question about the Valar Orome, our sort of knight or recruiter who rides around on his horse, Nahar. And you were asking if Nahar was somehow related to Shadowfax, Gandalf's horse from The Lord of the Rings. And so I dug into the appendices and I found this little passage. And it's about the ancient men of Rohan and their leader named Aorol who's later called Eorl the Young. And it says, Eorl rode to the field of Celebrant, for his horse proved as long-lived as men, and so were his descendants, meaning the horse's descendants. These were the Maras, who would bear no one but the king of the Mark or his sons until the time of Shadowfax. Men said of them that Bema, whom the Eldar call Orome, must have brought their sire from west over the sea. So a lot of extra proper nouns in there, but it's basically saying that the men of Rohan believed that Orome brought the Maras, these special horses, over the sea to Middle-earth. So there is that connection with Nahar. It's not a straight-up descendant. You know, these aren't like the horse children of Nahar, Orome's horse, but it's definitely we're supposed to be thinking of that same pattern that these are top line horses and even the men of Rohan at least believe they have a divine origin. So that was a okay. really good instinct that you had there that I hadn't thought yeah. of before. So like the Maras are the best horses in Middle Earth at that time. Like Nahar was the best horse in the world at that time. I think you're right. And I'd also forgot that note that the Maras would only let the kings of Rohan ride them which makes it such a big deal when Gandalf manages to get Shadowfax to let him ride him. Yeah, Gandalf popping up everywhere here. Yeah, he really does. Maybe that's our bias leading us in that direction, because I know we're Gandalf fanboys. The other question that you had was, we were talking about the two trees of the Silmarillion, Telperion, which later is descended, becomes the white tree, but then there's Laureline, the golden tree, whose fruit later becomes the sun. And mm-hmm. you were asking if that had anything to do with the golden trees in Lothlorien, the home of Galadriel in the Lord of the Rings. And that one's a little more tenuous, but I found out that those so those trees in Lothlorien are called Melorn trees, these enormous trees that the elves live in. Right. And that kind of tree is originally from Valinor, where the gods oh, live, okay. the Valar live. And they only grow in Valinor. Later, they're going to grow in Numenor, but we won't talk about that right now. The only place in Middle-earth where they grow is Lothlorien. Oh, okay. So So it's kind of like a sapling situation? Yeah, there's not a direct connection. Kind of like this Nahar and Shadowfax thing. It's never said these are the seeds of Laureline, but considering they're both golden trees that come from the same place, it's like, okay, if these aren't Laureline, we're probably still supposed to think these have some kind of energy from Yavanna, our green-thumbed planner, who made these as well. And one nice note about that is you remember in the Lord of the Rings books, this doesn't happen in the movie, but in the books, Galadriel gives Sam a seed of one of those trees. 
Oh, right. And he ends up planting it back in the Shire where the party tree was, but then got cut down by Saruman and his cronies. So the only place that these golden trees that are supposed to harken back to Laureline, basically they're in Lothlorien, one in Hobbiton, and that's it. Wow. It's kind of incredible. So the hobbits, the peaceful tillers of earth, are now the holders of the best tree in Middle-earth. Yeah, absolutely, which I think is really nice. What a gift from Galadriel. Yeah, she really gave the crew a ton of gifts. And uh, maybe we'll talk more about the the history of those gifts. We're going to have a whole section about Galadriel and her fabulous and history. It turns out that Galadriel actually is way older than even the other elves that you think of as being really old, like Elrond. She's a whole other level of ancient wisdom. We're going to get into all of that later. For now, at least we have those connections from the Lord of the Rings, that like these Maras, Shadowfax, these horses, and we're thinking about Orome and Nahar. And then when we see the Malorn trees... We can think back to Laureline, Yavanna's greatest creation over in Valinor as well. Yeah, that's super interesting. I will leave you with that, Raleigh. I just wanted to follow up on those two things because I know we're blazing into new frontiers next week. So I wanted to settle those first. That's both of us keep an eye out for more connections like that because they apparently are... They exist, (laughs) and they're (laughs) worth tracking, even if neither of us know it off the top of our heads. If those sort of things pop up, I'm excited to track them down. Yeah, well, hopefully I can uh, continue teaching you a thing or two about the Silmarillion. (laughs) Yes, indeed. All right, bud, I'll see you later. All right, talk to you later, Sam. 